Here, for this is the word of the Lord. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. Jesus proclaimed that he is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for his sheep. And this act is the greatest act of love known to mankind. Now when he said he is the good shepherd, he was alluding to himself as God. As he is the only redeemer of his people who will lead them to eternal life with him. Because he mentions that he owns his sheep. Unlike the hired hand who runs when he sees the wolf. To a certain extent, all under shepherds, pastors, elders, we're all just hired hands. Not because we run away when we see the wolf, but because we are imperfect in our judgment and in our shepherding. And we don't actually own the sheep. God is the only true shepherd of his sheep. As he would leave the 99 for the one who has gone astray. And they come back to him only when they hear his voice. Now our problem or our imperfection is that we do not have the power in ourselves to bring back a sinner into the fold. Yet the Lord can use us as a vessel of his mercy. And here James wants to make us aware of what we have in our fellowship with one another. He wants us to know the vital importance of our love and our mutual care for one another in Christ. And what is its effects? It may have eternal significance when we least expect it to. He is speaking to the entire church and and he begins to describe someone who reflects our good shepherd, who seeks out the one who is straying from the fold of God. He reflects one who loves God's people as God loves his people, leaving the 99 and seeks the one who is straying. So there are three points that I have for you this morning, and they are all practical for us. And they are to be watchful, bring back the sinner, save the sinner. So first, we are to be watchful. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you you wanders from the truth, it is true that the church in this age and in this world is the wandering church. We are in a wilderness seeking our rest in the promised land. Here in this world there is much confusion. There is false teaching that is constantly creeping into the church. There are besetting sins that plague entire churches. Besetting sins in our own lives. Sins that we desire to be rid of. 
You, you can say to a certain extent that on Monday, we all begin to wander away from the truth. But then on Sunday, we are called back together for a covenant renewal in the truth. To worship our God, to adore Him, confess our sins and hear His word, and be renewed in our minds. That is the state of the church as of right now. But here, James is describing a much more serious situation. And it can take on many forms. But we will focus on two that is most common in our churches today, which will help us to answer the question, what does it mean here to wander from the truth? Well, first... To wander away from the truth can be speaking of someone who wanders away from the gathering of the saints where we gather to hear the truth. Both in in the Old and the New Testaments, not to gather is unheard of. This individualism that we see in American evangelicalism is not heard of in the scriptures. In fact, To not gather with the saints was a sign of sin in someone's life. You think of the letter to the Hebrews. It was actually considered sin not to gather with the saints. And here to wander could have meant that someone was leaving the church entirely. And we know from scripture that we are saved not to be lone ranger Christians. But we are saved To be part of a church. Now with this uh, pandemic. Many can fall into the habit of. Avoiding the gathering of the saints. Now we must be understanding. There are those who have underlying issues. There are those who have been fearful. Those who have been sick. Those who have been weak. That we must consider with gentleness and mercy. But often today. What we are seeing in many churches across the country. The problem is. At the root is our own sin. We may be harboring some type of bitterness or disdain toward the people of God or toward God Himself. So we choose just not to go to church, and now we have the perfect excuse with this pandemic. We have gotten to the point that we no longer hunger and thirst after righteousness or the source of it, which is God. But it is here. It is here in the fellowship of the saints that God delivers the truth of the gospel, which is a spring of water that gives life to our souls. And the Spirit of God binds us together as a family, no matter how imperfect we are in this life. All because we have a perfect union with Christ and a perfect union with one another. This is why the author of Hebrews says that we ought not to neglect to meet together as it is the habit of some. And these, in the letter of Hebrews, are those who are wandering away from the truth. Or it could be because we have been listening to various false teaching and heresies that make us wander from the truth and leave the church. Because today many believe that all religions are basically the same. And all religions say the same things. And this teaching can come into the church. They say that all have the same morality and all religions serve the same God. 
It's funny, when you look into all of these other religions, first you come to find out that no one is living up to the teachings that they are teaching. And secondly, and most importantly, you come to find out they, they do not serve the same God. Because they do not receive the one true God, God the Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who actually takes on human flesh and dies on the cross for sinners. You see, that is the main difference between Christianity and all other religions. For this is the only way to be saved from the wrath of God. It is through the cross of Christ. But many still wander away from this truth. More and more people have been moving away from this truth of the scriptures. So ironically, more and more people have been moving away from the moral and holy standards of the Bible. And that is the next person I will describe. So secondly, to wander from the truth is not just to wander from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and leave the church, though that is part of it. False teaching and false doctrine do lead many people astray. But the danger of wandering is not just outside of the church when you leave, but it can come from within the church. And it is not just false teaching, though that, that's where it begins. It begins with false teaching. But false teaching eventually leads to false practice, even in the church. Because the truth is the truth which, as Paul says, accords with godliness. So in this, ta- in this context that James is addressing, he is addressing sin. Because the effect of the gospel truth is that it transforms lives. So truth and godliness go hand in hand. They are not separate. You can't have the truth and not godliness and godliness without the truth. You need both. If you possess the truth of the Bible, the truth is to be lived out. So this situation may be speaking of someone who knows all the right doctrines. He may have been raised up in the church, catechized, comes every Sunday, but he is heading in the wrong direction. He sits in the pew, hears the word of God, and it does nothing to transform his decision making. He is heading into a direction that is opposite to which God has called us to. He is heading into a lifestyle of sin. He may be following some who have crept in unnoticed, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Because it says that if that we can pro- profess to know God, but deny Him by our works. So this person is a church attender, but he has trivialized sin. There are many in churches today who do this. There are many who are church members in various denominations where they have trivialized sin and made sin no big deal anymore. 
It's all grace. Not knowing that sin perverts grace. They believe that you can live a lifestyle of sin and still be a Christian. Now this is not speaking of struggling with sin. We all struggle with sin. Even the holiest of us. But living a lifestyle of sin is not the same as struggling with sin. Living a lifestyle of sin is giving our lives over to it. It is living as though we are deaf or hardened to the word of God. A few examples today uh, that are being taught throughout churches across America and around the world. And this one particular example has been going on for decades. Is speaking about sexual relationships outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Any sexual relationship between a man and a woman outside of marriage. They say marriage is just a ceremony. Well, the wedding is just a ceremony. Marriage is no big deal. You could just live together and we could count that as marriage in our own minds. But you see, throughout the scriptures, marriage is a big deal. We see how Paul speaks of it and how Christ cares for the bride as a husband should care for his bride. Why? Because Christ made a covenant to his bride. He made a vow to his bride. And this is exactly what we do in the so-called ceremony of marriage. We have professing Christians who say marriage is, no, is nothing. It's a man-made ceremony. It's not really in the scriptures. But we see it. We see it everywhere. There's no express command. But we see a negative in the, in the Ten Commandments. We see this in the Seventh Commandment. That says we shall not commit adultery. What is adultery? Well, to society is if uh, you, you sleep with someone who is married. Or if you're married, you sleep with someone who's not. But really, adultery is any form of sexual relationship outside of marriage between a man and a woman. It is adultery. And notice how Paul even speaks of those who will depart from the, the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Who is he talking to? He says it is those who forbid marriage. He's saying... They have been devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. They're listening to demons. And you see the beginning of the crumble of our own society. It begun there. The destruction of marriage. And we see where we're going. They're listening to deceitful spirits. And there are others who are teaching that you can live a proud homosexual lifestyle and still be a Christian. That would be to ignore all of God's word. And they're also teaching it is okay to be transgender. Just given to your desires and emotions. God accepts you as you are and as you feel. Don't worry about what he has said about sin. They're saying you can live a lifestyle of sin and be okay in the judgment day. 
And this is being taught in churches. But it is contrary to everything we know about God and His holiness. It is contrary to everything we know about what He says in His word. So the question is, who will we agree with? God or man? And then if they don't get their way, they take it to the streets and riot and burn other people's properties and think that they are in the right with God. So here's an example that you can be in a church and still wander from the truth with everyone else. So what matters is, is whether or not you have the truth. Do you possess the truth? And does your church possess the truth? Whenever you visit a church, you should ask yourself, does this church have the truth of the Word of God? And what matters is how that truth changes your life. How it transforms your life. How it molds your life. And notice those who teach these things are teaching these things in the name of love and tolerance. That is a demonic cover-up. Because instead, they are presuming on God's grace. Grace does cover our sins. We sin daily. We fall into temptation daily. But it is a totally different thing when we are willfully disobeying the Lord. In other words, they are teaching that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on on the cross for our sins so that we can live however we please. This is how they define grace. But is that the truth that is found in the Scriptures? Is that the truth that we see in the Scriptures? No. In actuality, they are teaching and living a lie. They are wandering away from the truth and leading others in the same direction. And that direction is only destruction. They are under the wrath of God and don't even know it. And they think they'll be okay because they are doing it in the name of love. But do we know what love is? Love is first truthful. Love is grounded in the truth. The truth that God revealed to us. Not the truth that the world around us has told us. Not the truth that mobs around us want to jam down our throats. It's not found in the news or the media. Not the truth that speaks of tolerance that is intolerant of those who are intolerant of lies. And do we know what love does? Love acts. Love is first watchful. We are to watch out for our brothers and sisters. And it has to be evident. It has to be evident that someone is wandering away from the truth. This this is not a call to be nosy or snooping around for dirty little secrets so we can pass judgments. But it is to be watchful. 
And if it is clear that someone is wandering from the truth into sin and death, love seeks to remove the veil from their blinded eyes in order to bring them back. And that is my second point. Because not that long ago, love in our culture was displayed as live and let live. Do whatever makes you happy. If living with this person or sleeping with that person makes you happy, do it. It's okay. Jesus loves you anyway. You know, that is how you pack churches. If we want this church to be packed, we would preach that message. Live and let live. This was defined as love. Now now these days, love has become totalitarian. Uh, Submit to my Marxist agenda or else. But the live and let live way of life still exists. And it is practically equal to this scenario. Uh, Let's say if an 18-wheeler was speeding down County Route 10. And we see our blind friend walking towards the middle of the road. Would we attempt to run, to push him out of the way, or at least yell to warn him that he is about to get hit by a truck? Well, for the person who loves in the live and let live mentality, they would have to say, no, not my business. By the way, I love him. Isn't he great? And then we kindly watch him get hit by a truck. The emphasis on kindly. These days, if we do it kindly, it passes as okay. But that is not the love that is found in scriptures. God has often called us, in many instances, to hold one another accountable. He calls Cain. He calls on Cain. He holds Cain accountable for Abel's death. What does he ask? Am I my brother's keeper? We see this in our reading this, this morning. When God tells Ezekiel, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that w- wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. It's like when growing up, and your sibling does something wrong. And you just look, in, look on with a grin. Without warning him, hey, I don't think mom and dad is going to be pleased with this. Then mom and dad find out that he did something wrong. And you're just sitting in the background, smiling away. Until mom and dad ask, did you know about this? And you didn't warn him? You know what happens next, I don't need to tell you. Here, in our text, love becomes confrontational. Love is action. Love tells someone when he or she is wrong versus love these days that is non-confrontational. Again, live and let live. But here, this is what fellowship produces. Even when we speak of something so serious as church discipline, it consists of telling someone when he or she is wrong so they may have a chance to repent. 
They may not see what they're doing wrong. They may have blind spots. We're called to do this. Not only for the honor of Christ, but to restore a brother or sister and bring them back to the truth. You can't love anyone without discipline and correction. There's no such thing as love without discipline and correction. How many friends have we have lost over the years? It was all good when times were good and we were partying and doing whatever. But as soon as we had the hard conversation, they were gone. Love that doesn't confront someone who is straying is a love that only has self-interest in mind. That is only caring for one's own well-being. And this may be hard for many of us to do, if not all of us to do. Many of us try to avoid it. No one should enjoy the process of confronting someone. Especially those who are wandering away from God. I don't enjoy it. And hopefully it is a rare occasion in our fellowship. But also we must consider there are many different ways to go about this. We think of technology these days. You don't have to be in someone's face. Or go through a boxing match in order to confront someone. I mean, unless you're into that sort of thing. But you can send letters, emails, text message, phone call. Because the truth is you can't twist someone's arm into believing. You can't force anyone into the kingdom. You can try. But that is God's work. But at the same time, here, we are all responsible when we are aware to gently try to bring back the prodigal child. Why? Why? Because there is an outcome. There is a blessing of bringing a sinner back. See, Christianity is a rescue religion. It is a rescue religion. It is the point of the existence of the church to call sinners into the fold. What are we here for if it is not to bring sinners to the truth? And this is so important for the life of the church. This is so important for our fellowship together. And James wants to emphasize how important this really is. It is of eternal importance. Why? Because bringing a sinner from his wandering back to the truth of God in Christ leads to their salvation. Salvation is what is of utmost importance to James. That is why he ends this letter with salvation. Not only physical salvation. Here he is speaking of spiritual salvation. But what was important to these churches that James was trying to correct? What were their imperfections? What were their priorities? Status? Money? 
their own importance. These were the things that were important for these churches. They were suffering from spiritual amnesia. They had forgotten how God was gracious to them. They forgot how God sought them and saved them. But what does God tell us is the priority of the church? What does God tell us is the priority? Not what the world tells us. The world and our culture love to tell us what is the priority of the church. What is the church supposed to be doing as if the world are the experts? But what does God tell us is the priority? It is the salvation of sinners. He says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. This is speaking of the spiritual death of those who wander and reject the truth in the end. It is of utmost importance because it is eternal. And eternity is a long time, as a good friend of mine loves to say. Think about it. It is a long time. And it is without end. And all men, all men will live eternally. Whether in Christ or under the wrath of God. Now we don't have the power to save anyone. We, we don't save anyone on our own. Uh, this is not saying we are responsible for anyone's salvation. It is the bringing him back to the truth of God in the scriptures. And it is the truth that saves. We are just vessels for that truth. If the sinner is brought back to the fellowship and he hears the truth of God, the Holy Spirit will do the rest. And if he rejects the truth, you are not held accountable. You are not held accountable for anyone's choices. Also, if we bring back a sinner from his wandering, he not only needs salvation, but in order to be saved, there must be a transaction. No one can be saved and still be stained with sin. Sin cannot enter into heaven. So he says that bringing back a sinner from his wandering will also cover a multitude of sins. The word multitude there is trying to uh, translate to us all. All of his sins. To cover sins is known, especially in the Old Testament, as referring to the atonement and the covering of blood. Atonement is speaking of expiating or or removing not only the guilt of sin, but also the sin itself from the record of the offender. By way of sacrificing one who is completely blameless and innocent in the offender's place. There is a sacrifice of an unblemished goat or a lamb and the blood of the animal is sprinkled on the holy ornaments to cover the sins of Israel as they offended God. 
And I believe this is what James is speaking of here. This was the only way that Israel could be made right with God. This is the only way that anyone can be made right with God. It is through an atonement and the covering of one's sins. So when he's saying, when he's speaking of bringing a sinner back to the truth, and that this truth, uh, that this bringing back will cover a multitude of sins, he is saying that there is an atonement for sins waiting for him. But first, we must answer the question, whose sins? This text has been misused for a type of penance. If you bring back a sinner, uh, then you'll have a multitude of your sins covered or forgiven. Just like some people believe that if you do some good deeds, those deeds will cover all the bad deeds you have done in your life. It doesn't work that way. The truth of the matter, there has been too many bad deeds for any good deeds to cover. But whose sins is he speaking of? It's not our sins. If we bring back a sinner from his wandering, it's not our sins that will be covered. But it is the sins of the sinner who was lost. So bringing him back will cover his sins. Our sins are already covered. Our sins are already paid for. So secondly, we naturally ask, how are these sins covered? Or better, who covers these sins? Is it us? Can the act of bringing the sinner back cover sins? Are we responsible to atone for the sins of others? Can we atone for other sinners' sins? No. Sinners cannot atone for other sinners, no matter how saintly we are in this, in this life, no matter how holy we think we are. This is why, and this is one of the many reasons why, they needed an unblemished animal in the Old Testament. Because there was no such thing as an unblemished human being at that time. Even as a pastor, or as a Christian, I cannot atone for the sins of anyone. If someone was to walk in here and kill me, that would not atone for your sins. I've just been given a separate task to teach, preach, and pray. That's it. I'm a sinner just like you. I'm not holier than you. Now I am held to a higher standard, but that doesn't mean that you're exempt from that same standard. There are many people who believe this. Many people believe that the pastor or, the, or, or priest is much holier than everyone else, and you know, as long as he's doing his job, we're all covered. We're all okay. That is nowhere found in the scriptures. We intercede. As priests. But we're all priests. In God's house. 
to intercede for one another. But no sinner can atone for other sinners. Because one took the place as our high priest, who is the true mediator for our sins. And he has made the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And this answers the question, how are these sins covered? Remember, it is bringing back the sinner to the truth. What truth? What truth? As we answered earlier, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for our sins. We're bringing him back to this truth. The truth of the gospel that is found in our fellowship. The truth that is found when we encourage one another to love and good works. Now, if someone who has heard this message and tasted the goodness of the word of God, then begins to wander He is heading down a path to crucify again the Son of God. What does that mean? In other words, if we hear the word and neglect the warnings and continue to live as we please, we are rejecting the cross. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. This is why he says, if we bring him back, his sins will be covered. Because if someone continues to wander from the truth and eventually rejects the truth and lives a lifestyle of sin, there no longer remains a cover for sins. In other words, if someone continues to live a lifestyle of sin, he just proves that he wasn't a Christian to begin with. And the sacrifice on the cross never applied to him. This is why the cross is so vital for the Christian to be a Christian. Without it, we cannot. Now, we'll never know the true status of someone who is wandering from the truth whether or not they are true Christians that is not for us to know we can only judge by outward appearances and still give warning based on those outward appearances like hey I think you're going down the wrong way there I believe some linger on that question a little too much that is not what is important here but what is important is that there is a promise that if he comes back to the truth or repents, he will be forgiven and all of his sins will be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. What good news. That is a gospel promise. That is the gospel. It is amazing grace. And this goes for any of us. Any of us who have wandered into sin at any moment, at any time. We can come back to Him. And He will receive us. 
It is true for anyone who has wandered from the truth of Jesus Christ. And that he is the only one who can atone and cover for your sins. He is the only one who can save you. Yet, he uses imperfect vessels like us to bring you back. As instruments, as vessels, as a means of salvation. He uses you to say to the sinner, come back. And he uses me to say to you, put your trust in his victorious blood. Amen. Let us pray.